Well, within the one man, one woman, spiritual union of marriage, there are many sorts of relationships. What I mean is the circumstances of each marriage is unique because every person and thus every relationship is unique. There are all sorts of factors. Uh, We can think of the natural temperament of husband and wife. Issues related to money and employment, cultural background, age. Marriage looks different at 25 than it does at 75. Physical health, mental health. Does your mother-in-law live in the guest bedroom? Do you have children? How old are they? What are they like? Every marriage is unique. Every marriage presents its own blessings and its own challenges. And yet, on a fundamental level, every marriage is the same. We learned last week from Ephesians chapter 5 that human marriage is a picture, it's a portrait of the ultimate marriage between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. In the eyes of God, and God created marriage, so he makes the rules, the husband represents Jesus, and the wife represents the church. And so gospel-centered marriages begin with husbands who love their wives, as Jesus loved the church in his death, sacrificially and for her good, and with wives who submit to their husbands in everything, just as the church submits to Jesus. And each spouse is is to be doing their part to paint that accurate gospel portrait of the ultimate marriage between Jesus and his bride, regardless of of the myriad of possible circumstances surrounding the marriage. That gospel portrait never changes. Which isn't to say that God doesn't place us in difficult marital circumstances. Circumstances even where one spouse is not doing their part to paint that accurate gospel portrait. And our passage today concerns one of those difficult circumstances, being a Christian wife in a marriage with an unbelieving, non-Christian husband. Now, let me be clear about something right from the start. Christians are never to deliberately, knowingly enter into such a marriage. We need to bring some biblical truth to bear Let's talk about this in in absolute terms, all right, from a biblical perspective. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What shared commitments belong to the believer along with the unbeliever? Let me just read to us some biblical texts. This is the word of the Lord. The cross of Jesus is foolishness. To an unbeliever. 1 Corinthians 1.18. An unbeliever is under God's condemnation. <clears throat> John 3.18. Their governed by the flesh minds are at enmity with God. Romans 8.7. God is their enemy. James 4.4. 4, Romans 5.10. God's wrath hangs above them, waiting to fall, Colossians 3.6. They hate Christ, and they hate Christians, John 15.18-19. They live for evil human desires, 1 Peter 4.2. 
They are under the power of sin. They are slaves to sin. Romans 6. The things of the Spirit are foolishness to them, and they cannot understand the things of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14. They do not fear God. Romans 3.18. Christian single, I'm talking to you. These are the verses you must preach to your own heart when you meet someone who is an unbeliever and there is an instantaneous attraction. Or if you find romantic feelings developing for someone over the long haul, at work perhaps. Because let's not fool ourselves. Christians can fall head over heels in love with unbelievers. And if marriage is based on love and selflessness, things that many unbelievers are naturally prone to, then that is fertile ground for a good marriage as the world defines it. Let's not get on our religious high horses and think Christians always make for excellent spouses. And all unbelievers are divorce cases just waiting to happen. Many Christians wake up every day and pray to God for grace to love their Christian spouse. And for shame, not a few non-Christians wake up every day and pray for grace to love their Christian spouse. So, Christian single, let's say you come across a person at work or on a dating app who's a really nice person, and maybe you're at an age where you're deeply concerned if it is God's will that you ever marry. Uh, This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where you must preach Scripture, God's truth, to your own heart, or you are in danger of rebelling against God's Word. Your selfish priorities must be subordinated to God's revealed will for you. His will, as it's been revealed to all Christians in the Bible, not, not your subjective feelings, not some personal revelation of angels at your bedside telling you it's okay to date this person, not what you take to be the internal promptings of the Holy Spirit telling you to marry such and such an unbeliever, Scripture alone. 1 Corinthians 7, 39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. That is a very explicit command, and I don't see any way of getting around the implications. Christian men and women are only to marry other believers. And dating is part of the cultivation of a romantic relationship that could lead to marriage. So if you're pursuing an unbeliever with a view to awakening and deepening a romantic relationship that could lead to marriage, you are doing something wrong. 1 Corinthians 7.9 says that we are to marry only in the Lord. And if you're on a trajectory to fall in love with and marry a person who is outside the Lord, then you are on a deliberate trajectory to disobey that text. From what we read in Scripture, beloved, the only mixed marriages God accepts are existing ones. That is, where one spouse becomes a Christian or on the dark side of the spectrum, One spouse abandons the faith. They apostatize. But God is sovereign in salvation. And sometimes a married 
unbelieving woman believes the gospel and she is savingly converted, but her husband does not believe. And the apostle Peter asks, what then does wifely submission look like in this case? And clearly, Peter says very little by way of qualification in this text. He doesn't get into the specifics of working through if the unbelieving husband is a drug addict or a drunkard or if he's lazy or if he has terrible B.O. Or if the man is Prince Charming himself, drop, dead, gorgeous, utterly selfless, loaded to the hilt, a devoted father, but still an unbeliever. It's not possible for Peter to outline all the variables, so he leaves that to the work of the pastors and the wisdom of Christian counsel. Uh, Here's what I'm saying, folks. A Christian woman who is experiencing trying, difficult times in her marriage, if she's asking questions around the edge of this text, she needs to get help from trusted people in an effort to think clearly about her situation. To do that is appropriate, it's honorable, it's biblical, it's wise. If that's you, come speak to me. Uh, Speak with Pastor Alex. We'll work through this together. Be careful about calling up lots of people in the church to more or less gossip about your marital difficulties under the specious pretext of asking for prayer. But what the Apostle Peter does in this text is he lays down a single principle. Submission. And beloved, I'm eager that the men and women of New City Baptist Church, single, married, young, old, I'm eager that we understand this as a call to something strong and something noble and something beautiful and dignified and worthy of a woman's highest spiritual and moral efforts. So let's jump into things by first looking at the big picture. What are we talking about here? Look at your bulletins. Here's the question. What is wifely submission? And I wrote a little mini essay there for you. It's a wife's, what is wifely submission? It's a wife's divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. It's not an absolute surrender of her will. It's her disposition to yield to her husband's guidance and her inclination to follow his leadership. Christ is her absolute authority, not the husband. She submits to her husband out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5.21, and for for the Lord's sake, 1 Peter 2.13. The other side of the coin, of course, which we looked at in great detail last week, is found in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbandly headship does not consist in a series of directives to the wife. Leadership is not synonymous with unilateral decision-making. Brothers, headship is so much more active so much more engaged, more loving, more involved than simply saying, we're going this way. I'm the head. I have the veto power. Headship bears the primary responsibility for the moral design and planning in the home. But the development of that design and plan will include the wife. A a, a good husband will take responsibility to establish a pattern of interaction that honors both husband and wife and children as a store of varied wisdom for family life. Let me offer some examples. Let's just put some practical flesh on these bones. Uh, What church will you and your wife be members of? Brothers, that's going to involve you investigating the theology of various local assemblies, their teaching, their practices, and it might involve some hard conversations with your spouse. 
What if your wife isn't convinced about, say, the sovereignty of God and salvation and would rather attend a church that promotes free will or a church that baptizes infants or who have a form of church polity you feel is less than biblical, brother? Let's say it's elder-ruled, for example. Um, or is egalitarian in its approach to gender roles in the church and in the home? Or what if your wife's major criterion in choosing a local church is the size and the amenities of the nursery or the ethnic makeup of a church or the music style? Give me drums or give me death. You know, brothers, brother, which church you and your wife will be members of will involve you thinking through where you're going to live. Commute times to Sunday worship and prayer meeting. Does your wife drive? If not, that's going to, be, that's going to make difficult uh, discipleship with other ladies in the church if you live in Pickering, but you are a member of a church in Mississauga. Brother, are you prepared to open the scripture and wash your bride in the word on all of these fronts for her spiritual good? Are you prepared to say No. Another example, prioritizations in the household budget and giving to the church. You're going to hear this again at the members meeting today, but let me express the importance, brother, of your household's consistency in giving, not only to aid us in planning a church budget, but for your own soul and for the good of your wife as you lead her heart down a God-honoring path. Giving to the church is part of your all-of-life worship. Do you have a family budget? Giving to the church should be very near the top of that spreadsheet. It's one of your financial priorities as a believer in Jesus Christ. It's part of your membership covenant to this church. That's down to you, ultimately, brother. Uh, ultimately, the Lord holds you, me, responsible for that as you lead your family in a God-glorifying direction. Headship bears the primary responsibility for the moral design and planning in the home. So don't let giving to this local church feel like an unpaid bill that you're running to catch up with. Set what you give aside first and make sure your wife is included in that conversation. Work through the numbers together. And let what you sacrificially and cheerfully give for the work of this local assembly impact the rest of your financial decisions as a family, not the other way around. Taking that approach is going to impact things like vacations, real estate, schooling, restaurants, clothing, what sort of vehicle you drive, keeping up with the Joneses. There is a biblical heart posture towards money and possessions which you yourself must be pursuing, brother, but also leading your wife in. How are your children disciplined with love and consistency? Does dad believe and practice one thing and mom another? Good grief. Get your house in order, brother. What does family worship look like in your home? Is that down to mom ensuring the children's bath schedules, dinner preparation, and cleanup are taken care of by herself alone while hubby more or less sits on his duff after a long day of work or else there is no family worship? For shame. Brother, how are you thinking through your career, your wife's career? What motivates, what controls that discussion? What are your priorities as a family? 
Do you see? It's things like that. I, mean, I, could, go, I could go on and on and on. Headship bears the primary responsibility for the moral design and planning in the home. But the development of that design and plan will include the wife. It's not, it's not, should we go to Pizza Hut tonight or do Thai takeout? We're going to Pizza Hut. I'm the head. I have the veto power. Submit. It's nothing like that. Now, to set the stage, notice a phrase in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Ladies, that means there is a uniquely fitting submission to your own husband that is not fitting in relation to other men. You are not called to submit to all men the way that you do to your own husband. But to your own husband, you are called to submit, whether he's a Christian or not. Now, Peter isn't bringing up this topic of wifely submission just out of the blue. It's part of his whole teaching thrust for Christians to submit to God-ordained authority beginning in chapter 2. Verses 13 to 17. We're going to make our way through this. There the apostle admonishes all Christians to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether it's to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. Then he moves in verses 18 to 25 to household slaves and admonishes them to be submissive to their masters in reverent fear of God, both to the good and considerate masters and to the harsh and unjust masters. In chapter 3, 1 to 6, the lion's share of our text today, Peter moves to the next authority structure. He instructs the wives to be submissive to their own husbands, including husbands who are unbelievers. So just as we saw last week in Ephesians 5, 21, submission is a wider Christian value uh, for all of us to pursue. It's not the sole preserve of wives to their husbands. But today, we are focusing on that marital relationship. And I want us to notice how verse 1 and verse 7 begin in chapter 3. It's the same Greek word in both. Verse 1, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Verse 7, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. In the same way as what? What's the nature of this comparison? And this is such an important theme in Peter's first epistle. It's gravitational center, really, which focuses so much on suffering. What's the nature of the comparison? It's this. The principle of Christian submission directly relates to the example and the person of Jesus Christ. The principle of Christian submission directly relates to the example and the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter's referring to when he says, in the same way. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your own masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Ah. Verse 22. He committed no sin. And no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. 
when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That means Christ dies uniquely for us. Yes, he, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, Christian. But he also dies as a model. Right? And just as Jesus did not retaliate, just as Jesus bore abuse, just as Jesus loved even to the death on the cross, so you die, wife, husband, to yourself. Wives, in the same way, under the cross of Christ, death to self, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Sister, you have to die to yourself in order to submit to your husband. Verse 7, husbands, in the same way, under the cross of Christ, death to self, directly related to the example and person of Jesus, be considerate as you live with your wives. Because what's the big thing that's at stake here? Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may, have, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Citizens to governmental authorities, slaves to masters, wives to husbands. So do you see, in all three cases, Christians are to present themselves before a watching world as people who emulate Jesus Christ. We're to pattern our lives on his example, our marriages. But notice also the evangelistic thrust in, of verses 1 and 2, the evangelistic intent behind this wifely submission. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that... If any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. That means that on the last day, as they rise from the grave, some men, and enter into their internal inheritance of the new heavens and new earth, those men are going to owe their salvation to the honorable conduct and good deeds of a wife who was determined, God's grace assisting her, to live out her days in real, costly, faithful submission to her husband. That's what the text says. It's glorious. I'm personally, I'm very close with a couple. They're friends of the family where this was the case. The Lord used my father to lead the wife to Christ, but the husband wanted nothing to do with Jesus for 35 years. And 14 years ago, the Lord saved the husband. So in their late 60s, the couple became, for the first time, a Christian couple. 35 years of faithfulness on the part of the wife. 35 years. The husband was saved through the example of a woman who, without fear, learned to entrust herself to God's promised care. Saved through the, uh, the silent eloquence of his wife's pure and reverent behavior, which daily preached the transforming power of Jesus Christ. 
And I can't think of a more encouraging word for many of our sisters in Christ, not only in Canada, but all over the world, who are giving everything they have to follow Jesus. And in marital circumstances, most of us can't even begin to imagine. Now, this silent eloquence of submission, this this preaching of a gentle and quiet spirit, does not mean there is never gospel proclamation on the part of the wife to the husband. There must be verbal heralding of God's spectacular news concerning the death and resurrection of his son for sin. Uh, There is a basic, non-negotiable deposit of information that needs to be proclaimed, heralded, to a person if we're to say that we've honestly shared the gospel. And that goes for Christian wives married to unbelieving husbands and the rest of us as well as we seek to be faithful evangelists. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, I've mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. If we have a sunshiny disposition in the home or at work or on campus and someone asks us why we're so cheerful all the live long day, and we reply, because Jesus loves me. He gives me peace and joy, and he has a wonderful plan for my life, and I'm living in God's will, and I'm in a relationship with God. That may all be very true, but we mustn't leave that conversation thinking that we've been heralds of God's good news. If we were to ask someone if they believe in Jesus, and they reply, certainly not, and then we respond by saying, but don't you know, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God. We have not shared the gospel. That's pre-evangelism. And that's fine. We want to get our foot in the door any way we possibly can. But the gospel is what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of his son for sin, not an attestation to Jesus' divinity. As well, if we give our personal testimony of how uh, we came to the Christian faith, we have not shared the gospel. The gospel is an announcement of what God has done and must never be confused with our response to it. Similarly, the gospel is not receiving Jesus or believing in him or being converted or joining a church. The gospel faithfully declared and rightly received will certainly result in people receiving Jesus, believing in Jesus, being converted, joining a local church. But such steps are not the gospel itself. And no one could be more emphatic than the apostle Peter has been about the place of the word of God in a person's conversion. Chapter 1, verse 23 of this text. Uh, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So he's not contradicting himself now. Yet there are situations in which the silent witness of Christian love, of wifely submission in particular, a gentle and quiet spirit, the silent, humble enduring of 1,000 marital injustices must support and prepare for the presentation of the gospel. Unbelieving husbands may be alienated by wives who constantly beg them to become Christians, stick Bible verses on the bottom of their beer cans, and place evangelistic tracts under their pillow. Don't adopt that course of action, all right? A better course is to live a faithful Christian life. 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And as your unbelieving husband sees your holy transformation, sister, as he, sees that, as he sees your beautiful character on display, he may be won over without words. It's not what you say, it's what you are. 
day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. Chapter 3, verse 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Which is not to say, ladies, that you should try to be, you should study to be as plain Jane as humanly possible. The point is that your self-identity is not wrapped up with your clothing or your jewelry or your hair with how pretty you can make yourself. If that's the case, then you're actually, you're missing something at the very heart of the gospel. Remember the wise words of John Piper warning about a Christian woman's attitude toward her clothing and appearance. And you could almost put in anything in the last sentence I'm going to say here, but he actually, he did it with clothing and appearance, so I'm just going to quote him. Um, Until God has become your treasure, ladies. Until your own sin has become the thing you hate most. Until the word of God is your supreme authority. Until the gospel of Christ's death in your place is the most precious news in the world to you. Until you've learned to deny yourself short-term pleasures for the sake of long-term joy and holiness. Until you love the Holy Spirit and long for his fruit more than man's praise. Until you count everything as loss for the sake of the supreme value of knowing Christ, your attitude toward your clothing and your appearance will be controlled by forces that don't honor Christ. Sister, the greatest beauty that you can attain to is the transformation of your character. A gentle and quiet spirit is something that has beauty that will last for eternity. It's unfading in contrast to the fleeting beauty of jewelry or clothing or a stunning figure. So look to your inner self, right? Look to your character. Seek to model a gentle and quiet spirit in your relationship with the husband God has given you. And Peter's not saying you must be a certain personality type that you should be meek and mild and demure and docile, that extroverted women make for ungodly wives. Not at all. Ladies, you can be wonderfully extroverted with a spectacular sense of humor. You can be bright and vivacious and still have what God would call a gentle and quiet spirit. The adjective gentle is being used here in the sense of not insistent on one's own rights, not pushy, not selfishly assertive, not demanding one's own way. It goes back to the cross, right? Jesus' model, it goes back to death to self. And that attitude is of great worth in God's sight. New City Sisters, modeling a gentle and quiet spirit in your marriage before a watching world in imitation of Jesus Christ is how God evaluates beauty. Put Vogue and Cosmo down. And of course, all this is being worked out in your posture of wifely submission. Your divine calling to honor and affirm your husband's leadership of your family and helping him carry it through according to your God-given gifts. Sister, don't make this text say something it's not. Peter is not talking about a woman surrendering her will or leaving her brain at the wedding altar. 
He's not forbidding you from ever having an opinion or idea or from ever uttering a syllable of disagreement like a meek little mouse. God forbid. I mean, who, what man wants to be married to a living carrot like that? He's talking, ladies, about your disposition to yield to your husband's guidance, your inclination to follow his leadership. He's talking about making a choice, an act of your wifely will to affirm your husband as the leader of your home within the limits, of course, of obedience to Jesus. And your wifely demeanor will be such that you honor your husband as your head, even when you disagree with him, even when he's mean to you, even when he sins against you, even when he treats you unfairly, even when he's selfish, even when he is unjust. Remember, the principle of your wifely submission directly relates to the example and the person of Jesus Christ. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered... He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Wives, in the same way. Submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Sister, you will find many times in your marriage, many times, that you are right and your husband is dead wrong in how he thinks it's best to proceed in a given situation perhaps you're twice as smart as your husband three times as emotionally mature and 10 times as godly now i mean why you settled for <laughs> that guy i don't know you're just asking for trouble but no matter let's just say that's the case your demeanor to your husband as you patiently explain to him why your idea is wiser will always demonstrate that gentle and quiet spirit, even if he disregards your advice. Even if your unbelieving husband up and moves to Perth, Australia to mine for silver and you have to leave your family and your church to follow him on his self-absorbed, greedy adventure. Or if your Christian husband believes it's best to move to Bora Bora to plant a church. Don't worry about it. Don't give way to fear, sister. That's what Peter's referring to in verse 6. You're submitting to your husband out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5.21. And for the Lord's sake, 1 Peter 2.13. Not because the man consistently exercises the wisdom of Solomon. Not because he always loves you sacrificially. And for your good, not because he deserves it, not because he's earned it. Jesus is your absolute authority, not your husband. And you can entrust yourself wholly to God's care. You can rest your faith in God's omnipotence, his character. You can entrust yourself to the bridegroom who will never fail you. That's true beauty, Christian sister. The beauty of the inner self the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Husbands, let me ask, 
Is this a beauty we are cultivating? We are shepherding in the spouse God has given to us. Are we washing our wives in the word? Are we taking this responsibility, what I'm talking about here, seriously? Are we leading our wives with sacrificial love for her good down this holy path? Or are we not touching her ugly sin blemishes with a 10-foot barge pole for the sake of peace and quiet, right? I mean, every married couple, every husband understands this where um, it's Saturday night, maybe it's Friday night, there's some, there's some plans, and maybe your wife comes home from work, and there's, just, there's sin. Maybe there's something in her attitude that's sinful, you get into a fight, whatever it's going to be. And it's like, do we deal with this now and ruin the evening, you know, potentially? Our plans will be put on hold, or actually, do I lovingly, without ego, aware of the log sticking in my own eye, with humility and patience and selflessness, lovingly talk to my wife about this and, and open up the word and wash her in the word. Brothers, are we responding to the quiet and gentle spirit of submission in our wife appropriately, recognizing it for what it is, thanking God for his grace, not taking it for granted or as it's my due somehow, and aware that our wives are engaged in a spiritual battle to act this way towards us? Are we keeping our pride in check, always aware that she is ultimately submitting to the Lord? She's not submitting because we're so capable and so wise. Fathers and fathers-to-be, Lord willing, is this the kind of woman you're teaching your sons to look for in a wife? Mothers, is this the unfading inner beauty? Is this unfading inner beauty on clear display before your own children? As you relate to your husband, what are you modeling? Is it on obedient display before you have children? Fathers and mothers, are you cultivating, are you shepherding this definition of true beauty in your daughters? Single men, is this the beauty you appreciate most in a Christian woman, or are you foolishly looking for beauty merely in the realm of the physical? Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Beloved, are our hearts in tune with the heart of God concerning what is truly precious and beautiful in a woman? And this is where Peter brings in an Old Testament parallel. He brings it to the service in verse 5. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. Not, see, not clothes and jewelry and fancy hair. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. And, and following Karen Jobes, I don't know that Peter is referencing any one passage here in his reference to Sarah. In Jewish tradition, Sarah is a virtuous woman, and virtuous women are understood to be obedient to their husbands. Don Carson thinks it's probably a reference to Sarah leaving Ur the Chaldees with Abraham, going to a land she doesn't know, away from her father's house, crossing over several cultures, uh, taking a long time to get there, stopping for a while in Haran and all the rest. And in any case, Peter encourages Christian women to submit like Sarah. She is the Old Testament parallel. Now, before moving to our final and relatively short second point, let me ask us one more time, 
What does submission look like? And I need you to take this, sisters, and apply it to your context. You need to apply it to your marriage. You fill in the specifics of your circumstances. And husbands, listen up. We all need to be sure our own house is in order. Submission is the disposition to follow your husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. It's an attitude that says, Husband, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family, to move our family in a God-glorifying direction. I'm glad when you take responsibility for the things of our family and you lead with love, making our marriage a platform for the glory of the gospel. I don't spiritually flourish, husband, when you are passive and I have to make sure our family is pursuing God. On the contrary, I flourish most when I can respond creatively and joyfully to your lead. Point two, very quickly. A Christian man's wife is heir with him of the gracious gift of eternal life. Thus, his relationship with God is hindered if he fails to live with his wife in a godly way, treating her with respect and consideration as a more vulnerable party in the headship-slash-submission dynamic. Now, obviously, at this point in the narrative, Peter has moved from a mixed marriage to a Christian marriage. He's talking to the husband as if he's a believer at this point. Husbands, in the same way, right? Under the cross of Christ, death to self, directly related to the example and person of Jesus. In the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect or give them honor. It can be rendered the same way. Be considerate. Be kind. Be thoughtful. Be gentle. Let your love be manifest in doing good for your wife, to your wife. Give her respect. Give her honor. Understand her. Study your wife. Lift her up. She's precious. She deserves nothing less than your most elevated and intimate care and love and concern and honor. In the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. And that's not talking about muscles. Rather, when God sets up this sort of marriage relationship, this marriage portrait in a fallen, broken world, the person who is in the submissive part of the pattern is the, more, the person in the more vulnerable spot. Right? They're in a weaker position. And so the Christian husband must treat his wife with respect and be considerate of her all the more because she's in that vulnerable place. And the man is given a twofold motivation to do so. Number one, his wife is a fellow heir to the gracious gift of life. That ought to just pole axis of we're husbands. My wife is fellow heir with me to the gracious gift of life. Husband, your wife is an equal partner and partaker with you of the glory that is to be revealed on that last day. She too has been bought with Christ's precious blood and God has entrusted you with her spiritual care. She is of eternal value. She is priceless in the sight of God. So treat her with dignity. Treat her with respect. Love her sacrificially. Love her in the same way as the ultimate bridegroom served his bride. Death to self 
for her good. Death to self for her good. Let that be our watchword, brothers. When you go home this afternoon, tired and worn out, wanting only to retreat into your man cave and watch the Green Bay Packers or whatever, remember what you've been called to. And at this point, I would just tack on the entire sermon from last week from Ephesians 5. Just plunk it in right there. Love your wife sacrificially and for her good as Christ loved the church. I, I preached those two texts in the order I did for a reason. The second motivation to husbands for the careful stewardship of marriage is so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Husband, if you fail to give this honor and this care to your wife, your fellowship with her will suffer, and so will your fellowship with God. Your prayers will be hindered. That's a strong word. Your prayers will be blocked. They will lose their effectiveness. Before your words get to God, they will be interrupted. Husband, do you want your prayer life to tank? Then ignore your wife. Don't be considerate and understanding to her needs, her personality, her desires, her temperament, her temptations, her besetting sins, her weaknesses, the grace of God in her life. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. We're out of time. But in conclusion, I want to point out that Peter's section on the duties of wives and husbands closes just like it begins with an overriding concern for the other person's spiritual welfare. Do you notice that? The first reason cited for the wife's submission to her husband is that he may be gained for the faith, right? It's other-focused. It's death to self for the good of the other. And the last thought Peter leaves with husbands is that they are to do nothing that would hinder their wife's spiritual life and growth. Again, other-focused, death to self. Just like Jesus, beloved, and his glorious, glorious gospel. Amen.